Uh, many of you know the book that Elie Wiesel wrote. Uh, he wrote it in response to his experiences in the concentration camps of World War II. He entitled that book, Night, because of course it's great darkness. And in that book he shares the story of walking past a boy that had been hung. They were filed to walk by this boy and as they looked, one of the men in front of him asked the question, where is God? Wiesel wrote in response to that, he is there, hanging in the gallows. It's easy to understand that sentiment. All of us have either either have or will face tremendous darkness where we are tempted to, to conclude that God is dead. And the days of Elijah were no different. In fact, they were much the same. Pervasive darkness and death were so great in the days of Elijah that had we been living then, we would have been tempted to conclude the same as Wiesel did. That God was dead. And yet the Lord in His kindness graciously knows this and preserves His word for us that in our own days of darkness, we might know where to look. To see light. To see power. To see glory. And so that's the question for us this morning. A very simple one that we're going to be asking throughout our study of this passage here in Kings. Where are you looking? Where are you looking? When things are hard or even when things are good or even boring. Where are you looking to see light in life? Where are you looking? Where are you looking for answers to build your life upon amidst the difficulties of this world? In 2 Kings chapter 1 we'll see where not to look. And then in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 14, we'll see where to look. Uh, so if you're new this morning, we've been walking through the book of Kings. We find ourselves in 2 Kings again, chapter 1. You can find that on the, cho- on the chair Bible right in front of you, in the, the, beneath the chair in front of you on page 307. So it'll be good for you just to keep that in front of you. We're going to walk right through that passage. Uh, and so again, first point here this morning, where are you looking? First point is don't look to idols. Where you should not look to. Do not look to idol. That's what we learn in 2 Kings chapter 1. And I realize that for some of us, when we turn over the pages in here to Kings, 2 Kings in particular, chapter 1, some of you have asked me, well, when you when we started Kings, Nathan, are we going to do 2 Kings? And you know I've answered like, well, of course we're going to do 2 Kings because it's always been one book. Uh, and so first and second Kings in Jesus' Bible, Jesus was allegiant to the Word of God, and the book in his Bible was Kings. Uh, the book in Jesus' Bible was not first and second Samuel, it was just Samuel. It was just Chronicles, Ezra Nehemiah, one book. And so that's what we're going to do. These books were broken up centuries later, and so we're going to follow, they're going to trace their themes, go right on through them. And so the theme of Kings continues on here in second Kings. It is one book. And as we've said throughout our series, the book of Kings is teaching us that the Lord is king and he is going to bring about the promise to David to have his king to sit upon his throne. The Lord is king. Uh, And if people do not believe or do not live as though he is king, those people are forced to meet with God's judgment. That's what we've been seeing in Kings. That's what we see today. Uh, We see that. We saw that in particular last week. When Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, was judged for his idolatry. And this morning we're going to see uh, uh, Ahab's son, Ahaziah. He is going to be judged. And in fact, if you remember last week, we saw a little bit about Ahaziah. When you look back at the end of 1 Kings 22, we saw a description of what Ahaziah's 
life was like. And his life was just as bad as his dad's. He was an idolater. He was a wicked king. And we'll see that again here uh, as we read the passage. Take a look at 2 Kings 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub? the God of Ekron. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. And so what we find here is Ahaziah, this king of Israel, he falls through this kind of garden fence. His life is in danger. And instead of falling, instead of calling upon the one true God to know his fate, instead he sends his boys to Ekron to inquire of an idol. Baal's above. Jesus will use this same language, the same sort of God to uh, indicate that he is of Satan later in the New Testament. But this word Baal's above means Lord of the flies. That's the translation Baal's above Lord of the flies, which seems to indicate that the Hebrews had a little bit of fun in naming this God. Uh, the God of Baal's above was seen to be by believers as little more than a Lord of the flies. He was an idol in that area that was being worshipped. But I want you to think about what Ahaziah is doing here. Think about his instinct that when things go bad, his instinct was to call upon this idol and not call upon the God that had made himself available to Israel. Think about that. God, the one true God, saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. He gave them his law, gave them leaders. He fed them. He drove out their enemies. He gave them his presence. He gave them prophets to call them back. Ahaziah even had his throne only because of God. And yet when something goes wrong in one of her leaders, that leader decides to call upon not the God that had saved them and sustained them, but instead to call upon an idol. This would be like taking care of an aging parent, loving them, washing them, changing them, feeding them, only to find out that after they fall, they do not call you. They call that annoying neighbor instead. How would that make you feel? Now imagine how that made the Lord feel. That when he loved these people, pursued these people, gave them his presence, when one of her kings that he appointed goes and chooses to inquire of another false god. You can see this would understandably provoke the Lord to anger. He'd done everything. God had done everything to give them access. And yet... This king ignores him. Three times in this passage, we hear that question. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? You can see that question in verse 3, verse 6, and verse 16. Darkness invaded Ahaziah's life, and his instinct was not to look to the one true God, but instead to look to the Lord of the flies. In verses 5 to 8, we read that those messengers that Ahaziah sent to Ekron, we've seen that they kind of turn around and come back pretty quick. And Ahaziah sees them, those messengers, they come back quick, and he says, why are you guys back so soon? And they're like, well, we ran into this guy along the way that challenged us, 
that made us to wonder why we would be going to Ekron to pursue this God of Beelzebub when we should pursue God. Isaiah says, well, tell me what this guy that you ran into looked like. And they said, well, he was wearing like a hair shirt with a leather belt. And Ahaziah goes, Elijah. So friends, when trouble comes your way, what God will you seek to relieve you or guide you? Where will you look? And you should know that it's not always the God that you claim to believe in in those times. You'll know who you're looking to based off of who you pray to. Or better yet, if you pray at all. You may claim Christ as Lord, but friend, if you pray to the God of money by hoping in finances to relieve you and your anxiety, then your God is the God of money. If you're constantly sort of changing the image of God, the glory of God, the God that has revealed himself in Christ, sort of taking pieces in parts, then ultimately you're serving the God of self. Not Christ as Lord. When difficulty comes, you know who you serve based off of who you turn to. And Ahaziah served an idol that was a dead and a silent God and who was of no help to him in his time of need, just like all idols. And as if that wasn't bad enough, not only did he pursue that idol, he ignored the living God that had revealed himself time and again and that had made himself available to him. So again, the question, where are you looking? When trials and tribulations come upon you, when trials and tribulations come upon your children, when trials and tribulations come upon your parents, your friends, where are you looking? You'll know where you're looking based upon who you pray to, or again, if you pray at all. You and those you love will probably not fall from an upper chamber through lattice, but death and darkness are on their way. Where will you look? Elieviso looked to his reason in that darkened moment and concluded that God was dead. Ahaziah looked to the Lord of flies. Countless millions looked to other idols of their own making to give them relief. So again, who will you look to? And you need to know, friend, this morning, don't wait for tragedy to strike in order to answer that question. Answer it today. Answer it today. There is a God not only in Israel, friends, but there is a God right here in Washington, D.C., that has made himself available to you in Christ. He is the one true God. He is ruling and he can give you mercy in your time of need. Where are you looking? Don't look to idols in Ekron. But you might be asking this morning, well, what if I don't, Nathan? What if I don't, pastor? What if I don't look to him as Lord? What if I don't see Christ as king? What if Christ is not Lord to me? And conclude instead that he's dead. And I seek to build my life upon other things. Things you Christians would call idols. What then? Well, we see the fruit of those that call upon idols in verse 9. Take a look. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He sent to, he, he went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Judging them. Now the presence of fire is oftentimes a reference to the presence of God. You see that, for instance, in God when he made a covenant with Abraham, the fire pot walking through 
the beast there. We know we see fire as a presence of God in the uh, in the presence of God in the burning bush with Moses, fire leading the Israelites in the wilderness, and of course the fires on top of Mount Sinai when God is meeting with Moses. And here the fire refers to God's judgments on these enforcers of idolatry that have come to attack Elijah and his God. And as if Ahaziah wasn't a big enough fool to challenge Elijah and his God once like this, look at verse 11 and 12. You see, he does it again. Sends another 50 with another captain. And the same thing happens to him. God's fire of judgment comes down and judges them, consumes them. And then as if that wasn't enough, Ahaziah does it still a third time, as if he hasn't learned his lesson. But this third time, this captain that comes is different than the other two. Verse 13. And the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. Now that word entreated there is oftentimes translated the word be gracious to. In other words, this captain comes. He's seen the judgment that has come. And he sees that judgment twice. And he says, I need grace. From this God. And so he goes, he goes and he bows before Elijah in reference to bowing before God. And evidently God gives them this grace that the captain fought, called for since he is not consumed by fire. But instead, Elijah then gets up and goes and speaks to the king yet again. And from this little interaction between these two groups of 50 that were consumed and the one that wasn't, we learn two things. Two things about this interaction. The first thing that we learn is that if your heart is set on serving idols, then nothing, and I mean nothing, save the grace of God, will turn you back. If your heart is set on serving idols, then nothing, save the grace of God, will turn your heart back. Right? Fire from heaven smoked these two groups of 50, and that still didn't stop Ahaziah from sending another group of 50 to try to shut Elijah and his God up. So it is for those that are entrenched to their idols. No matter how much nature, no matter how much apologetics, no matter how much logic, no matter how much prayer goes their way, they will not have it because they love the God they serve. And they're willing to sacrifice everything to keep serving that God. I've spoken to a number of you that have ministered to parents and to family members, to friends, And you've testified to the fact that you're perplexed by not seeing any spiritual change in them. No matter how how kind you've been, no matter how much you've prayed for them, no matter how much you've testified to Christ to them, you've answered their question, you've been gracious to them in their complaints, but they haven't budged. And you ask why? Well, Ahaziah shows you why. Because while there is a God in Israel that has spoken and made himself available, they are committed to going to God. The God of Ekron, that is, Beelzebub, instead of the God of Israel. In other words, they're committed to their idol. They love their idol, and they will not refrain from going to seek him. As in every case, people like that, God is going to have to awaken their dead heart if there's going to be any change. Don't forget that when you see the darkness of idolatry all around us. People may claim to have deconstructed from their Christian faith. They may claim to have weighed the evidence of the gospel. But ultimately, friends, the reason why they won't repent and follow Christ as Lord is because of their commitment to another idol. They look to it to relieve them, not the God of the Bible. And you should know, friends, that nobody is faithless. Everybody has faith. Everybody serves something or some word. 
And no matter what natural or supernatural evidence may be thrust upon people, these people are oftentimes not going to change. God's going to have to be the one to do it. Just think about the throngs of people that saw the resurrected Jesus and still wouldn't follow him. The Lord demands, friends, that we repent. And most people don't want to do that. They want to go on serving whatever God they're already committed to that they think will give them joy. Which should call us as Christians to pray more often. But we also learn something else beautiful here in this passage about these groups of 50, in particular this last group. We learn something from this last group. Just like with Ahab last week, we learn from this captain's humility before Elijah that God does show grace to those who humble themselves before the Lord. We see that in that third captain. See, unlike the other captains and their armies whose unrepentance faces the realities of judgment, this captain responds to the judgment. He learns from the judgment and evidently sees the power. He sees the might. He sees the righteousness of God and pleads for grace. And guess what? He gets it. He gets grace. Why? Because God is gracious. And yet again, I feel the need to remind you, where do we read about this gracious God? But in the Old Testament. Don't let people tell you that there are two different gods. This captain knew where to look in the face of judgment. The question for you this morning is, do you? Where are you looking when the fires of judgment are all around? Will you buck up and challenge the Lord and his people as Ahaziah and his armies did? Or will you humble yourself like the captain did and go to him for grace, knowing that you need it, knowing that he has it and is willing to give it to you? And friend, you should know this morning that if you've gone to Ekron too many times, if you've been serving idols, there's more grace in him than there is sin in you. Go to him this morning. Humble yourself and he'll give you grace. Plead for it. He'll give it to you. Well, Elijah does eventually make his way to Ahaziah. He tells him the same thing the Lord has told him. He asks him that question there in verse 16. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? In other words, the Lord's like, why do you feel the need to go somewhere else? I've put myself here in Israel, right? Remember the temple? Is there no, is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? And we could say the same thing here today in DC, right? Is there, is there no God in Washington to inquire of his word? Here it is. You've come this morning to hear it. Or will you go on looking for comfort and peace in other gods, other idols? What will it be? It's one of the two. You can't have it both ways. When difficulty comes, where will you look? Will you look to the triune God who's revealed himself to the, in the person and work of Christ? Or will you persistently and fruitlessly keep pursuing the idol that you're committed to? Well, we find that after Ahaziah is confronted by Elijah, Ahaziah kept looking at all the wrong places. He kept serving. He was committed to the God of Beelzebub false God. And as a result, look at verse 17. So he died. Underline these words, guys. According to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. What's the rule? Where's the rule? Where's the power? Is it in the kings of the earth? No. The Lord's the king. How does he rule? Through his word. The Lord is king, beloved, and he rules through his word and all will come to pass just as he has said, just as we've seen throngs of time throughout history. Well, we've seen where not to look. Let's now turn and think a little bit more about where to look. We've seen not to look to idols. Let's think a little bit more about where to look. Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. You see that a lot in the rest of this passage. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Well, friends, you're, if you remember back to chapter 19, 1 Kings 19, remember Elijah there was having his George Bailey moment. Y'all remember that when he's kind of standing on the bridge saying, just Lord, take me now. He was in despair. Remember that? And if you recall, the Lord was showing that he's ruling when Elijah thought that he wasn't. Remember, Elijah thought he was the only one left. And the Lord's like, no, I am doing things. I'm doing things subversively in ways that the world doesn't see, but you should see. And he showed that by giving Elijah three things to do. One, by reminding him that the, that there was going to be 7,000 people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Two, he told him to go and appoint a new king in Syria. And the third thing, if you remember, was to go and anoint Elisha to be his successor in the prophecy of that Elijah had been fulfilling. And if you remember, Elisha, he goes there, Elijah goes and shows up. And remember, Elisha, he sold everything as it were. He killed his, all of his oxen. He sold it and they ate it. He basically got rid of all of his livelihood and then took up following Elijah. Just like Peter, James, and John, as it were, throwing down their fishing nets and following Jesus. So Elisha does the same in following Elijah to be a prophet on the Lord's behalf. And here in this moment, in 2 Kings 1 that we're reading about, we are about to witness this transition between Elijah's ministry to Elisha's ministry. And this transition, guys, is spectacular. In fact, what we read here is so spectacular, many of our Western minds that need evidence for everything have a hard time believing in what we are about to read. Take a look again at verse 1. The Lord says he is going to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind with a chariot of fire. This is a miracle of the greatest proportions, right? And miracles for many of our so-called enlightened minds are hard to believe. Thomas Jefferson disbelieved in miracles so much, he was so enlightened, he literally, literally cut them out of his Bible. And so just a couple words briefly to build our confidence in the Bible's use of miracles. Because we're going to face a lot of them as we move forward. We've seen some already. We're going to see a lot of them as we finish up Kings this semester. So just a couple words to build our confidence in the Bible's use of miracles. First thing, I'm going to give you two. First thing is, if God is God, then why can't there be miracles? That's the most simple and clear question that I can ask. Miracles are an unexplainable event that transcends our experience. Right, we, we see people being raised from dead, Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a couple fish and a few loaves. These kinds of things. Elijah going up to heaven as it were, without dying. These things are fantastic. They're hard to believe. But friends, why can't these things happen if God is real? If we have good reason to believe that there, since we have a design, there must be a designer. If we have good reason to believe that since we see a creation, there must be a creator. Or that it would reason, it would seem to make sense that if there is a creator, he transcends of all of the creations. Then why couldn't he, the transcendent God, bring about the supernatural? Why could not he, the supernatural God, employ his supernatural power to accomplish his extraordinary purposes? In other words, friends, if you believe the first sentence of the Bible, then why couldn't you believe the rest 
which might make fantastic events like this one possible. But secondly, as it relates to miracles, the reason why we are so often prone to doubt them, understandably, is because, well, they are something that we as human beings can't explain, right? But remember, friends, if the barometer for belief is being able to explain everything, then we are in a lot of trouble. I went and I did a little fun exercise this week, just tried to you know, go to that really reliable source, the internet, to see, and I did double check these things just to be clear. Some of you in the congregation know. Uh, I asked you, if, is this true? Uh, but here's a few things that are in our daily lives that we cannot explain, that the most uh, wise among us, most knowledgeable among us can't explain. Do you know that scientists cannot, cannot understand why human beings yawn? That's a true statement. Right? They know, you know, oxygen kind of goes to the brain, whatever, but there's no consensus. They can't figure it out. They can't figure out why too, why when I yawn, then you start yawning. They can't figure it out all these years. They don't know why. Do you know that scientists cannot explain? I've used this one a lot. It's one of my favorites. Scientists cannot explain why a peregrine falcon flies over 200 miles an hour. Right? It's amazing. This bird can fly over 200. They can't figure it out. Right? They, they see that he has a little bit more, you know, lung capacity. He can kind of shape his, you know, his wings and the like, but they can't figure out why a peregrine falcon can fly over a hundred miles faster than the next fastest bird. Did you know that scientists can't explain why the universe seems to be expanding? There's some opinions, no consensus. They can't figure it out. And of course, none of this is to explain the otherwise inexplicable beauty of humility. Of love, of grace, of mercy. When you think about the basic nature of humanity that is pragmatic and individualistic, why is it we all see some beauty in people offering mercy and grace and love, which demands that we sacrifice something to ourselves? So if we can't explain some of these just basic pieces of life, Why would we think that we would be able to explain supernatural events that are brought about by a supernatural God? It would seem to follow that if God exists, and virtually every civilization, by the way, believes that he has, then his transcendent infinitude would necessarily demand that we would not be able to explain a few things. Especially supernatural events from a supernatural God. I've thought about this, friends, many times. When studying the Trinity, I'm reading a book about the Trinity now. I've said this to some of you. I expect that there would be things I can't understand about this infinite transcendent God. And so here's the thing for me. I I think a little bit differently about this than kind of the popular world. If I can explain everything about God, that probably means that he was invented by man. So I would expect, my assumption is, is there are things that my mind should be able to not understand. And that's exactly what we see in God exactly what we find in scripture it would seem that god would and could interact with his creation like little previews of his power and glory beyond creation which by the way is in many ways unexplainable just in and of itself looking at it and so we'd expect that god could do things like raise the dead and carry a man like elijah up in a whirlwind and that of course is exactly what we see in this passage god says after he's doing this take a look at Verse 11, after there's numerous interchanges where Elisha insists on following Elijah, we read in verse 11, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. 
Elijah is maybe the only man that has skipped death and gone straight to heaven. Some say Enoch. I don't know. Maybe. But at least Elijah is not one of those. And we're left to ask why. Why? Why this event? Why has Scripture preserved this? Why would Elijah go up and sort of skip death along with his chariot of fire and go straight to heaven? Why is this here? Why all this attention to Elijah's amazing delivery in the face of all this evil of Ahaziah? What exactly is going on here? What's the author trying to help us see? Here's my answer. He wants us to see that God's redemptive purposes in the world will advance amidst the darkness. Why this going up amidst the darkness so as to convince us that God's purposes will advance amidst the darkness? You just have to know where to look. You say, make your case, Nathan. Here I go. Let me first off, if you want to write this, jot this note down, you can look at it later. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 23. That's the, kind of the ending of the book. You'll notice that's the occasion of the, of the writing of this book. The occasion of the writing of this book is when Israel is in exile. The first readers of this book that we're studying are Israelites sitting hundreds of miles away outside the land. In exile, in judgment. All seems lost. Like Elie Wiesel, it would have been easy for those Israelites to believe God was dead. And yet God moved in the author, which many believe is Jeremiah. But God moved in the author to write this history of kings so that the believing community sitting in exile, tempted to believe that God is dead, that that 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal, that they would know that God has not given up on his people, that God has not given up on his promises, that he can raise people up to heaven when everything else is terrible. We just have to know where to look. Elijah's ministry pushed through the pervasive darkness of Israel like a warm knife through hot butter. Nothing could stop his ministry. The prophets we have seen time and again are stronger than the kings. The armies of Syria couldn't stop it. The will of powerful idolatrous kings in Israel and its idolatrous people couldn't stop the advance of the word. God's redemptive purposes marched on through Elijah the Tishbite, an otherwise unknown man that wore a hair shirt and a leather belt and evidently even got scared from time to time. And yet through this one man, the power of God's redemption marched on. Able to be lifted up to heaven, even though everything was dark. And what we see next in the next kind of scene of this story, this transfer from Elijah to Elisha, what we see is God's prophet going up in Elijah. But now in Elisha, what we're going to see is God's prophet and his word now more more powerfully going out. Take a look at verse 8. We see Elijah take his cloak. This is before I'm kind of rewinding a little bit before Elijah is taking up. We see Elijah uh, take his cloak and he strikes the waters of the Jordan River and they travel outside the land. Remember, the Jordan River was the kind of eastern barrier. He strikes the Jordan River and it parts and they walk outside the land. They're now outside the land, just as Israel was at the time of this reading. And when we when they get to the other side, outside the land, we read in verse 9, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. 
And he, Elijah, said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me, knowing where to look, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And so Elisha's request, which Elijah said was a hard thing, was going to be realized. He was going to get that double portion. It was going to be realized if Elisha saw God's mercy towards Elijah and having him ascend to heaven. If he saw that. And the reason it was a hard thing was because Elisha would need more than just physical eyes to see it. He needed spiritual eyes to see it. In other words, he needed to value it, to trust it, to treasure it, to believe it. And if he did, then it would be sure, that it would be clear that he had the double portion. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a hard thing to see Elijah arise up to heaven, right? Anybody just standing there, if you've ever seen, right, the pictures of the uh, space shuttle taking off. Everybody can see that. It's not a hard thing. So what's hard here? It's seeing and believing this going up to heaven. That's the hard thing that the Spirit of God must give him. That would be the evidence. And what do we find in verse 12? And Elijah saw it. In other words, by that he means he believed it. He saw it. He valued it. He trusted that God had done what he said he was going to do. And that then led Elisha to tear his clothes in two, indicating a reception of his double portion of Elijah's spirit. And then in verse 14, this is critical. In verse 14, he takes Elijah's cloak and he walks back to the Jordan River. Remember, now he's walking back into the land. He walks back to the Jordan River to come into the land and he does exactly what Elijah did. He strikes the water, indicating that since it was stricken, just as it was with Elijah and it's parted, so is it with Elisha. He's got the double portion. The water does part and he does just as Joshua did centuries before. He walks through a dry Jordan River into the land. Do you see the overlap? You read the book of Joshua, Moses passes off the leadership to Joshua. Joshua, first thing he does is walk through a part of Jordan River into the land to bring about God's blessing in the land. Now we see the same thing happening with Elisha. Now they were outside the land. Now he's got the double portion, got the double spirit. Now he's walking back into the land to bring blessing, to bring this double portion of the power of God's word in this judged land. Walking through dry ground just as Moses walked through the dry Red Sea. And friends, what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Kings after this is one miracle after another. And don't miss this. While at the same time, the documentation of things getting progressively worse in Israel. More idolatry. Elijah is, if you go back and count, you can do this this afternoon. Elijah is shown to commit eight miracles. And what we find is the author will carefully document for you, the reader, 16 miracles. Double portion. The author wants us to see that while Israel progressively swirls down the toilet, as Israel is mired in idolatry from kings to peasants, adopting the false worship of the gods around them, 
When everything seems dark and hopeless, when judgment from God is coming down like it did on those soldiers, God's word ascends like it did in Elijah. And God's word goes out like it will in Elisha, this double portion. God's word amidst darkness goes up and out while God's judgment comes down. By the the way, you can go back and read in first chapters 1 and 2. Just notice all the times you see those words up, down, up, down, up, down. God's word ascends and it rises and it charges on amidst the judgment. The fires of judgment are coming down on unbelief and it's going up and out for those that do believe. The fires of God's judgment come down on unbelief and it is going up and out for those that do believe. More powerfully even as the darkness descends, as the judgment descends. Elijah, right, has been able to bring the Lord's rule by his word in that time. And now all the more in Elisha, doubly, he will do even more while the darkness gets darker. Israel goes down. God's word goes up and out and nothing can stop it. Telling the believer that is reading in the exile. Telling those believers that are tempted to doubt as they sit in exile. Tempted to not believe that they can believe. Indicating to us today that we are reading in this place while we are also mired in all kinds of moral and spiritual gutters. Surrounded by a similar rule of evil kings. Us tempted to doubt. Reminding us God's word will advance. His judgment is coming down. But his word is going up and out more powerfully as it does. You just have to know where to look. That's the whole point of this passage. And so therefore it should be no surprise to us when we flip the pages and we eventually get to the New Testament. We should find a similar thing going on. And of course we do. When we pick up the New Testament, we find that there has been 400 years of silence. 400 years where God has not spoken through his prophets. Incredible silence and darkness when we open up the pages of the New Testament. Throngs of God's people wondering if they had, uh, if God had given up on his promise to David to have a king that would rule over them in the fear of the Lord forever. And so it should not surprise us that just as we were told, the greater Elijah that was promised comes in fulfillment in the person and the work of John the baptizer. The person Jesus says is the greatest prophet to ever live. Comes amidst that darkness. He also, John the baptizer, he also wearing the prophetic garbs of hair and leather. Standing not in the throne rooms of man, but instead standing in the wilderness. He brings about power and restoration, John does, by preaching the word of God, by calling people to repent of their sins, by baptizing them in water. And as they do, as they repent, there brings about this restoration. And just as Elijah, John the Baptist, does tremendous work amidst the darkness of his own day to see people restored to God. As amazing a ministry as that was for John the Baptist. His powerful ministry, though, doesn't end like Elijah's did. He does not ascend to heaven. But instead, he literally has his head chopped off for preaching the Bible. John the Baptist, go back and read this and check my work on this. He had his head chopped off for what he believed about marriage. Or rather, a ruler of this world kills him. But just as he is taken away, John the Baptist is taken away, like Elisha, the double portion comes in the ministry of Christ. Judgment comes down on Jesus and his word goes out and nothing can stop it. 
Jesus doubles the ministry of John the Baptist by being not only a prophet who preaches the word of God, but he is the word of God. He, Jesus, comes baptizing not in water, but in the spirit. He comes also as a king in the line of David to rule in the word of God, just as the Lord promised, amidst the darkness, amidst the otherwise silence from God. And true to his nature of advancing light amidst the darkness, Jesus would advance God's kingdom through the darkness in ways that you would have had eyes to see like Elisha did. It would have to be, in other words, a hard thing if you were actually going to see it and believe it and follow it. Not in the ways of the world, but in the ways of God. And so as Elijah said, it's a hard thing to see as God sees, to get that double portion, to see it, to value it, to believe it. You need, as Jesus often said and taught, eyes to see and ears to hear. Wasn't it Jesus that taught us that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field? It is the smallest of all seeds, he says, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other words, Jesus says it starts small, the kingdom, the power of God's word, his purposes in the world. It starts small, seemingly insignificant and unseen, and yet it advances if you have eyes to see it. If you know where to look. Friends, Christ, the greater Elijah and the greater Elisha, he, Jesus, preached the word and was cut down in the prime of his life for no other reason than for telling others who he was as the answer to all of God's promises, as the one that is the son of David. He, Jesus, died just as Ahaziah did according to the word of God. Jesus died like Ahaziah according to the word of God. Only his death was not for his own sins. Jesus' death was for the sin of those hoping in God's redemptive plan of restoration. Those that kept trusting in Christ's word to have atonement for sin. Jesus' death, though he was innocent, he was willing to take those fires of judgment that like fell on the armies. He took them upon his own back, though he deserved none of them. He paid the price for our sin. He showed mercy to us while the unbelieving made fun of him. Amidst the time when he was winning the most, everybody else thought that he was losing the most. And after three and 40 days, like Elijah, he ascended to heaven. In the whirlwind, as it were. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. Once again, friends, God won by weakness. Not by conforming to the patterns of the world but subversively overcoming amidst the darkness, advancing amidst the darkness. And even more, his ascension, unlike Elijah's ascension, was to a greater throne than all earthly kings. He was caught up, Jesus was, in a whirlwind that led him to sit down at the right hand of the Father where he now rules in the fears of the Lord. He sits on the throne of David and rules just as it was promised of him. Jesus now sitting, pleading the merits of his blood on behalf of all those sinners that are, like Elisha, seeing God's plan, demanding to stay in God's word. That's the whole point. If you're wondering why Elisha keeps demanding to stay with Elijah, because the author author wants you to see, i got to stay with the word. And Jesus is pleading the merits of his blood for those people that won't bow the knee to idols, but instead follow him. And not only that, friends, just as Elijah's ministry was subversively working through a dark and evil day, and just as Elisha's ministry doubled that ministry, so does Jesus' ministry double through his people 
as his kingdom has moved and still moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And here we are in the ends of the earth, just as it was prophesied. Jesus said that it is better that I go and send the Spirit. And so I share with you right now, while all seems dark, man, I feel it. Most of you don't know that guy that Joey prayed for, Clint Clifton, cut down out of nowhere. Darkness everywhere. Talk to some of you this week about gun violence right down your street. People dying left and right. Parents having cancer. And just gun violence, human trafficking, wars, unbelief, persecution, idolatry, sexual immorality. Like we haven't seen for centuries. Wicked kings ruling everywhere. Right now, friends, like the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, his kingdom. Right now, his kingdom doubles and triples and quadruples. You just have to know where to look. His word advances. The world looks to the typical power players and power places, but Christ doesn't need them. He's glad to advance through weakness out of sight from the world. And so, friends, while the New York Times and other major news outlets and cultural commentators predict the death of Christianity, they are looking in all the wrong places. Just as the naysayers made fun of Christ at the cross, looking in all the wrong places, unlike Elisha, they don't see. The kingdom is advancing if you have eyes to see it. Just a few statistics to build a little bit of your confidence that what we're saying is true. According to a LifeWay research study conducted just last year, what we find is, this may surprise some of you, Christianity is growing rapidly. It's stagnating in the modern West, where we live. In particular, it's stagnating in the cities we live in right now. Places like this. But it's growing around the world. Predominantly, it's growing in the global South. On the continent of Africa, for instance, more Christians live there than any other continent on the earth. Africa. By 2050, studies show that in Africa, there will be almost 1.3 billion Christians. And by the way, most of that happened in the last 100 years. Meanwhile, Latin America and Asia will have, uh, will have more Christians than Europe and North America. Many predict that by 2030, China will have more churchgoers than America. Christianity also continues to be less concentrated and more spread out. Praise the Lord for that. In 1900, 95% of all Christians lived in a majority Christian country. In 2022, that number has fallen to 53%. By 2050, most Christians around the world will live in non-majority Christian nations. Friends, don't let anybody tell you the lie that the that only Christianity sort of has these sort of centers of concentration. It's everywhere. Unlike Muslims, unlike Jehovah Witnesses, it spreads out. Operation World, which is an organization studying the unreached people groups, has found that Iran is the fastest growing evangelical church in the world. Iran. Have you read about that in the New York Times? And while we do live in a major city, we do see unbelief kind of stagnating in some ways. I can tell you just as a personal testimony that when me and my family and Joey and his family moved here in 2009, we only had a handful of gospel-loving, Bible-believing, mission-minded churches that we could point to. It's one of the reasons we came here. I can now testify to you there are throngs that I can recommend to you. 
And that's all happened in the past 14 years. Yes, maybe fewer Christians, but more rise of healthy churches. Again, nobody's reporting on that. You got to see it. And so, yes, the darkness is pervasive around us and around the world at large. I share many of your concerns about the challenges that will be coming in the forthcoming years to live out our faith. I pray a lot about the world that my sons will grow up in. It is not lost on me that I'm teaching them something that will maybe get them rejected, will get them imprisoned, or maybe even get them killed. That is not lost on me when I teach my kids Jesus. In many of these, in many ways, we are living in the days of Elijah. But friends, we are also living in the days of Elisha. The double portion fans out, unseen from the world. The double portion of the Spirit of God's powerful Word is moving all around us. Judgment is, to be sure, it is coming down in all kinds of places. But God's Word is going up and out in all kinds of places, out of sight from the Word, subversively. Christ, friends, is building His church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The call for us today is to look in the right places, to see it. Don't let the world tell you where to look. Look to the King of Heaven. Look to Christ as Lord. Know that He is the just and the justifier of those that believe. Weak faith in Him is better than strong faith in anything else. In your darkness and despair, don't consult idols. They are all, friends, Lord of the flies. There is a God in Washington and He is ruling. He has made Himself available to you in Christ. Go to Him. Repent. Humble yourself before Him. Find peace in Him. Believing that even in the darkness, his word will advance, his church will advance, and soon enough, we'll be home with him forever. The Lord is king. He is ruling by his word. I encourage us all to take up a place in his army as we see his purposes advance. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have sought out Beelzebub. Forgive us for all the many ways, God, that we have sought out idols and hoped in them. And Lord, we confess that it's hard sometimes. It's easy, as the psalmist does, asking, where are you, God? Thank you that you're the kind of God that invites our doubts. But thank you, God, all the more that you give us a word that acknowledges the darkness and the brokenness and says, I will advance. Oh God, may we hope in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you took the fires of judgment on our behalf. And thank you that you have ascended and that you are sitting upon the throne and your purposes are advancing. Oh God, may we gladly, powerfully, confidently trust in Christ as Lord and none other that we would be part of your purposes in the world. And finally, God, we pray amidst the darkness, come soon. We pray in Jesus' name.